Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Are you curious? Do you like hearing the secrets and confessions that people normally keep to themselves? reluctant to share with even their most trusted of confidants? At ConfessionPost.com, you can read such sensitive, juicy material. In the Confession Post podcast, myself, Morgan Rector, and my co-host, Lauren Villafania, pour over many of the site's confessions and give our own analyses. It goes a little something like this. So they're looking oh. for used cum to to use for, in gay sex. What, like for lube? Because that's what I would use it for. I can I can understand the element of, of sex and danger. Well, yeah, it's like, like those autoerotic asphyxiation people. But every time I go to the gym, I'm so pissed off at fucking Karen on doing cardio, looking like she's so happy. They keep talking about this aerobic high, but I, I must have gotten a hold of some bad shit. You can catch episodes of the Confession Post podcast on all your favorite podcast apps, as well as on YouTube. Hi guys. I have received many requests to cover certain cases for this show. I have found a way to accommodate this without playing favorites. At the first of every month, I will sift through names from my list of Patreon donors in a bowl and draw someone at random. That individual will get to choose a case for that month. The link to my Patreon account, once again, is www.patreon, that's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash leader one, L-E-A-D-E-R-O-N-E. Thank you and enjoy the show. Why do you seem so scared? All I wanted to do was play with you. Please come and play with me. I'm so lonely. You're not afraid of the dark, are you? Don't be afraid. Come with me. I will show you where I play hide and seek. Do you want to play hide and seek? You hide and I'll find you. 
The following has been cited as one of the worst child abuse cases in the history of the state of California. Prosecuting attorney Julie Baldwin said, It is the worst case we've ever heard of. The defendant is Mansa Musa Muhammad, born Richard Body. He changed his name after converting to Islam. He was a Muslim polygamist who subjected his three wives and their children to horrific abuse and neglect. Four of the children commented on the traumatic experience of living under Muhammad's roof. Michael said, Our living conditions were like a concentration camp. We were on complete lockdown. The doors were locked. The windows were locked. I wasn't even allowed to go to school. Del Marcus said he would lock us in the basement for days at a time. He would beat us. Crystal said, I remember a time my dad took a boat paddle and just cracked me straight across the head. Blood was everywhere. He got a needle and thread and stitched my head back up. Lakeisha said, I was raped by my father on a daily basis for 12 years. All three of them were forced by Mansa to eat their own feces or vomit for acts he deemed to be transgressional. History The following is transcribed verbatim from a document submitted to the Court of Appeals of California when Muhammad sought to have his convictions overturned. In 1973, Muhammad married Marva Barfield while living in Virginia. In 1985, they moved to Bakersfield, California with their 12 children. Thereafter, they had two more children. They lived in Bakersfield for about three years before moving to Riverside County. Muhammad's verbal and physical abuse of Barfield and their children, which began while they lived in Virginia, progressively increased after they moved to Bakersfield and then to Riverside County. Apparently, after moving to Riverside County, he began instructing Barfield not to feed their children for certain periods of time. At first, he instructed her not to feed them for a couple of hours, and eventually, he instructed her not to feed them for an entire day, or, in a couple of instances, at least a week. While Barfield and the children went hungry, Muhammad continued to eat whatever he wanted. Example, three meals a day and snacks. Whenever a hungry child would, quote, steal, end quote, food, he or she would be beaten or forced to eat all the stolen food until he or she vomited. In certain instances, two of their children, Sharon and Marlon, were forced to eat their own vomit and feces. After Barfield secretly fed the children against Muhammad's orders, he placed padlocks on the refrigerator and kitchen cabinet doors to prevent Barfield and the children from stealing food. Muhammad kept empty food containers in the front portions of the kitchen cabinets so that it appeared there was sufficient food for everyone in the event a child protective services worker or law enforcement officer visited the home. Muhammad beat his children with his hands, a boat oar, 
electrical extension cords, switches, example tree branches, and the buckle end of a belt. He would beat their hands and knuckles until they were in severe pain and their hands were swollen and bloody. He also would have the children lie on their stomachs with their feet in the air and then beat their feet, causing them to swell. He would then have the children stand and walk on their swollen feet. He also would have the children remove all their clothing and then beat them all over their bodies. In one instance, Muhammad kicked his son Curtis with steel-toed boots, injuring his leg and back. Muhammad refused to take Curtis to a doctor for treatment. In another instance, Muhammad struck his son Michael in the face with a tree branch, causing excessive bleeding. He denied Michael's plea for medical attention. Muhammad also ordered his children to beat each other or ordered all of them to beat one particular child. If he did not believe the beatings by the children were sufficiently severe, he would order their intensity increased. The children subjected to the beatings suffered bloody noses, bruising, broken teeth, and black eyes. Muhammad also forced his children to stand in a corner for hours, and sometimes for an entire day and night. If they moved or fell asleep, he beat them. Because they could not move, they often urinated and defecated on themselves while standing. He also locked the children in a closet, laundry room, bedroom, or the garage for days without food. Muhammad did not allow the children to use the bathroom in the house, making them urinate and defecate in buckets or plastic bags that, when full, were emptied into the toilet. In one instance, when his daughter Sharon used the bathroom without his permission, Muhammad pulled her hair so hard that she now has a permanent bald spot on her head. Muhammad also rarely allowed the children to bathe, shower, or brush their teeth. He did not allow the children to play with other children or have friends. Apparently, none of the children attended school. In 1995, Muhammad met Laura Cowan, who had a husband and two children. After Laura's husband went to prison, Muhammad, Barfield, and their children moved into Laura's condominium. They all later moved to Paris, California. Muhammad convinced Laura that he should become her guardian and, after a certain period, he would marry her. He became very controlling and did not allow her to work, attend school, or manage her finances. He became hostile to Laura's son, Ahmed, who was born in 1992 and was still wearing diapers. He yelled at Ahmed when he had accidents in his pants. He made Ahmed stand in a corner or in a bucket for hours. If Ahmed had accidents while standing in the corner, Muhammad punched Ahmed in the face. When Laura tried to intervene, he isolated her from the rest of the family for days. Muhammad told Laura to stay away from Ahmed because Ahmed was possessed by evil spirits. Muhammad also withheld food from Ahmed, struck his head with a belt buckle and a shovel, and beat his feet with a paddle. 
Muhammad treated Laura's daughter Maryam, who was born in 1995, in the same manner as he treated Ahmed. Muhammad also became increasingly violent with Laura. He became angry and argued with Laura when she formed a friendship with a neighbor in Paris. He yanked a telephone from the wall and threw it at her, choked her, kicked her in the head with steel-toed boots, and stepped on her head. After they moved to Desert Hot Springs, Muhammad's violent behavior continued to escalate. He threw a VCR at Laura, striking her head and causing it to bleed. He refused to take her to a doctor. He pulled Laura by the hair so forcefully that a clump of her hair came out. He struck her ear, causing it to bleed and ring. Muhammad again refused to take her to a doctor. In another instance, he pushed Laura onto a mattress, choked her, and stabbed her in the foot with a knife. In 1998, Muhammad married a third woman, Adrienne Easter, in a Muslim ceremony. She had a son, Abdullah, and a daughter, Jada. Muhammad soon became controlling toward Adrienne and would not take her to doctor's appointments. Abdullah, who was potty trained, began having accidents. He also lost weight and became socially withdrawn. Because Adrienne was concerned about Abdullah, she sent him to live somewhere else. In October 1998, Muhammad moved his family to a large three-bedroom house in Agwanga. Although Muhammad had told Laura and Adrienne that they each would have their own bedroom, he partitioned the three-car garage into a one-car garage area and a two-car garage area and forced the women to live with their children in the garage. Laura lived with her two children in the two-car garage area adjacent to the house, and Adrienne lived with Jada in the one-car garage area adjacent to Laura's two-car garage area. The garage did not have heat, bathrooms, or running water. Muhammad rarely allowed the women or their children to take baths or showers. He controlled all food purchases for the household and provided them with limited, and sometimes no, food to eat. Laura and Adrienne each had a small refrigerator and hot plate in their garage areas. Muhammad locked the roll-up garage door and door to the house so that Laura, Adrienne, and their children could not leave the garage unless he allowed them to do so. He closely monitored the few telephone calls Laura and Adrienne were allowed to make. On or about April 1, 1999, Laura accompanied Muhammad to the post office so she could pick up her mail and get her food stamps. When he was distracted, Laura handed a postal worker a 13-page letter she had written to her former social worker describing the conditions at the house. On April 6th, Police came to the house in response to Laura's letter. Officers found all the exterior and interior doors were secured with a chain and padlock or were nailed shut. They found bags of soiled diapers on the garage floor. On searching the master bedroom, they found several knives, a semi-automatic handgun, and ammunition. They found a boat oar in the living room. 
Muhammad's minor children were removed from their home and placed in foster care. Although the children initially denied Muhammad beat them, deprived them of food, or otherwise abused them, they eventually described to police what had happened in the household. In May and June 1999, Claire Sheridan Matney, M.D., a pediatrician specializing in child abuse and neglect, examined Muhammad's children. All of them were drastically underweight and under height for their respective ages. Muhammad's son, known as C, was almost 11 years old, but at 47 pounds and 47 inches tall, had the weight and height of a six and one half year old. His son Michael was almost 18 years old, but at 82 pounds and 56 inches tall, had the weight and height of an average 11 and one half year old. His son Marlon was almost 20 years old, but weighed only 78 and one half pounds and was 54 inches tall, which was the weight of an average 11 year old and the height of an average 10 year old. Marlon had scars on his forehead, temples, nose, and buttocks, between his eyebrows, around his lips, and on the backs of his elbows and hands. His teeth were chipped. His right arm had a healing fracture. He had fuzzy hair on his body, which is indicative of a child who was extraordinarily deprived. Muhammad's daughter Sharon was almost 19 years old but weighed only 56 pounds and was 49 inches tall, which was the weight of an average 8 and one half year old and the height of an average 7-year-old. She had not started her menstrual period, which was abnormal for a female of her age. She had scars on her scalp, chin, eyebrows, legs, and one ear and under her lip. Several of her teeth were broken. Her injuries were consistent with being beaten and punched. Her abdomen was distended from constipation, which is indicative of severe deprivation. In November 1999, information was filed charging Muhammad with seven counts of torture, 11 counts of felony child abuse, five counts of infliction of corporal injury on a spouse or cohabitant, and two counts of felony false imprisonment. In April 2008, a jury trial began on the charges against Muhammad. Barfield, Laura, Adrienne, and many of their children testified substantially as described above. Dr. Sheridan Matney testified it was her opinion that all of the children suffered from psychosocial deprivation, which occurs when a child is deprived of essentials during the growth period and subjected to chronic stress. That condition can be caused by severe physical abuse, isolation, or being locked up or tied down. She had seen only four such cases during her career. The prosecutor also presented evidence of Muhammad's prior uncharged conduct. For instance, Muhammad's son, Delmarcus, 34 years old at the time of trial, testified that Muhammad struck him on his head, hands, and feet, using a broom handle and a boat paddle. He further testified that Muhammad deprived him of food for up to one week. If he stole food, he was beaten or forced to eat the food until he vomited and then was forced to eat the vomit. Also, 
Muhammad hung Marlin and Sharon upside down by their feet while they were locked in the basement. Muhammad also threatened his children with guns, knives, and a machete. In his defense, Muhammad testified that everyone in the family ate three meals per day. He testified he never beat any child on the hands or feet or with an object. He testified he never made a child use a bucket instead of a toilet. He denied ever making the children stand in a corner, stand in a bucket, or beat each other. He testified Laura and Adrienne chose to live in the garage and were free to enter and leave the garage at will. He denied inflicting any physical injuries on Laura. He testified only one door on the Agwanga house was regularly locked and everyone had access to keys to all the locks. The defense also presented the testimony of Todd Balanca, a social worker who visited the Agwanga house on February 17, 1999 in response to an allegation of abuse by Laura. He testified the gate around the property was locked. So he waited until Muhammad and Laura arrived home and let him in. Inside, he saw the house was clean and there was food in the refrigerator and kitchen cabinets. He did not see any buckets of urine or feces. However, Muhammad ordered him to stay out of certain rooms in the house. Laura's children, Ahmed and Miriam, appeared healthy and well cared for, although they appeared emotionless and had a flat affect. Larry Boddy, Muhammad's brother, testified that he intermittently had lived with Muhammad and had never seen him strike, beat, or harm any child in his care. However, Boddy had never been to Muhammad's two most recent residences and had not seen the children between 1996 and April 1999. The jury found Muhammad guilty on all counts. The trial court sentenced him to prison for a determinate term of 16 years, 4 months, and 7 consecutive indeterminate terms of life with a possibility of parole. Muhammad timely filed a notice of appeal. Muhammad denied the allegations of abuse during the trial. While addressing the court, he said, I never tortured anyone. I don't know where that came from. After examining all the photographic and anecdotal evidence, the judge was not convinced by Mansa's rebuttal. The judge said, Mr. Muhammad showed no remorse and accepted no responsibility for his twisted behavior, and the court is sending the strongest message possible. Relatives sat in the back row of the court. Some of the women wore brightly colored hijabs. Sharon Body. 28 years old at the time, addressed the judge, saying, I'm very afraid of him. I really don't want him to get out of jail at all. Please, Your Honor, don't show him any mercy, because he never showed any mercy to his kids. Among the many acts committed by Mansa to be infractions included errors while reciting lengthy passages from the Quran. If they so much as forgot one word, they were beaten. They were also beaten for sneaking food and not asking to use the bathroom. Not all the beatings were meted out by Mansa. Sometimes he would delegate this task to one of his wives. He would also organize fights between his boys. While he locked up the cabinets and the refrigerator, he, quote, ate like a king, end quote, according to his children. 
Meanwhile, he would often deny food to the children, sometimes for as long as a week. Sharon was removed from public school and was then homeschooled. The reason given for this was that she frequently ran away. The school's complaint was that she kept stealing other kids' lunches. The administration was not aware that she was being deliberately neglected of food. Most of the time, they could only procure food by begging, picking a lock, or stealing it. If they were caught, Mansa would beat them or make them stand in a corner all night long. They were usually disallowed from using the bathroom. They relieved themselves in buckets placed in the bedrooms. Marlon Boddy, in an interview before the sentencing, reported that his father hung him upside down in the basement by cord. He beat him for hours. Mansa forced Marlon to eat his own feces and vomit. Marlon was so desperate for salvation that one day he smashed a bottle against his head with the intent of inflicting a serious injury that would warrant a trip to the hospital. This was not Marlon's only serious injury. To quote Marlon, He broke my arm once and wrapped a towel around it real tight like a cast. Imagine what it's like to see your dad split open your head, then sew it up with a needle and thread. Having been sheltered from the real world growing up, Marlon found it difficult to adjust to the outside world once he got his freedom. To quote Marlon, It's like 20 years of my life has gone down the drain. Even now, I get afraid to eat. I look around me to see if someone is watching. The family changed address frequently. They lived in Bakersfield, North Palm Springs, Desert Hot Springs, Moreno Valley, Riverside, and Aguanga. Mansa did not work. He made money by selling his food stamps and covered expenses with Social Security benefits he received for himself and the children. The children who attended elementary school were withdrawn and homeschooled. The rest of the children never attended school. To this day, many of them struggle with activities like reading, writing a check, and shopping for groceries. To quote Sharon, When I got out, I couldn't read. I had never been to school. The wives and children were frequently locked in the garage for days at a time. There was no lighting, no heat no air conditioning, and no toilets. They escaped this situation in 1999. One of his wives, Laura Cowan, accompanied Monsa as he ran errands one day. While his attention was drawn elsewhere, she slipped a 13-page letter that described the conditions at Monsa's house to a postal worker. The postal worker alerted the authorities to what was happening. The police raided the Muhammad home in Aguanga and arrested Mansa. Another of his wives, Marva Barfield, was charged with child endangerment and spent a year in prison. When confronted about why she didn't intercede on her children's behalf, she said in her defense, I married him at 18 and got out at 45. I was scared of him. I want to apologize to my kids for not doing more, but I was truly afraid of him. The one member of the family who advocated for Mansa was his daughter, Felicia. She asked the judge to show mercy. To quote Felicia, If he didn't have emotional problems, would he have done this? I want the hate to end and the healing to begin. When Mansa had his opportunity to speak on his behalf, all but two of his relatives left the room. He was defiant, insisting that he was innocent. 
He said his children were pressured and coached into saying they were abused. To quote Mansa, I made mistakes, but they know how I looked after them their whole lives. I tried to keep them together. My family never suffered the way they say they did. The judge denied a motion by Mansa's defense to sentence him to one life term so that he could make parole. The judge sentenced him to a life sentence for all seven counts of torture to be served consecutively. In other words, from the day of sentencing, he would not be eligible for parole for 65 years. He will leave prison in a body bag. He was 55 years old at the time of the sentencing. Marta Butterfield was one of the jurors. She was deeply affected by the case and made a point of attending the sentencing. To quote Butterfield, I think he is such a monster, and I wanted to see him get everything he deserved. Sharon Boddy described one abuse scenario during trial that occurred as a consequence of sneaking into the bathroom without Monsa's permission. He grabbed her hair with so much force that he pulled out a large clump of it from the roots. She was left with a bald spot, where the hair has never grown back. Sharon was asked by Julie Baldwin if she ever witnessed Monsa in possession of weapons. She said he would brandish a handgun, sometimes just inches from her face, and he would say, I can kill all of y'all, and nobody would ever know. She said she also saw him wielding a machete. Speaking about this, she said, Once he tried to chop my arm off. Mansa snickered audibly after she said this, in court. The way she described this incident was one of her sisters held her head down, another held one arm, and her father the other arm. It was at that point when he threatened to cut her arm off. Baldwin asked her about Mansa's motive. Sharon said, Because my stomach hurt and I wouldn't eat my food. She was asked why she didn't tell deputies what was happening in their home when his father was arrested over nine years before the trial. Sharon said, I didn't think my daddy was really going to jail. When Baldwin probed for more details, Sharon said, Because he always got away with it. She only gave more added details once she was sure she was safe. To quote Sharon, I finally realized he was really going to be in jail, and I was finally going to have a life. Since her release from Mansa's house, she underwent training at an organization called Job Corps, which taught her marketable skills. When asked if she was working at the time of the trial, Sharon smiled proudly and said, Yes, I am. She got her first job at the age of 23. Mansa's attorney attacked Sharon's credibility, alleging that her descriptions of the abuse did not hold up under scrutiny. A social worker who inspected the Muhammad house took the stand. He reported that aside from being forbidden by Mansa to look at certain rooms, everything appeared to be on the up and up. Mansa told him they kept some doors locked because one of his sons was mentally unstable and might run away. The police who raided the home reported that there were numerous bags filled with human waste. Speaking of waste, Marva Barfield disclosed during the trial that his wives were also disallowed from using the toilets. When a child was forced to eat their vomit, it was because they snuck food. They would be forced to eat the food until it was more than their stomach could process, and they would regurgitate it. Mansa would then make them eat the vomit. Mansa told legal authorities that his Muslim religion allowed him to be a polygamist. 
Marva Barfield, his first wife and mother of 14 of his children, testified that she beat some of her children with a boat paddle at his behest. She feared he would kill her if she didn't. He beat and threatened to kill her regularly throughout their 26 years of marriage. She received a lenient sentence for child endangerment as part of a plea bargain that required her to testify against Mansa. His wife, Laura Cowan, said he controlled the banking and finances. She and other members of that family collected social assistance. Sharon Boddy said that social workers had visited the home before and food packages were placed in cupboards before their arrival. The children were instructed to lie about the quality of care they were receiving. To quote Sharon, I told them everything was okay because my dad had coached us what to say. I'd say my dad treated us really good, that he was the best parent in the world. Along with her siblings, she indicated that they were rarely allowed to bathe, brush their teeth, and wash their clothing. Occasionally, they were taken into the yard and would be hosed down. As for physical abuse, during the trial, Muhammad alleged that Laura beat her son for wetting his bed. Muhammad denied ever physically harming him. His attorney, Peter Moriel, showed the jury three photographs of the boy. He was dressed in a blue shirt that appeared to have been stained with blood. There was a large bruise on the right side of his head. Attempting to cast himself as the hero, Mansa said, I got tired of her doing things. I used the pictures to take and warn her that if she continued to do this, what I was going to do. Laura Cowan later became a domestic abuse advocate with a specialty in polygamous and or Muslim families. She described her history with Mansa. As she described it, her initial impression of him was that he was charming and kind. She was struggling financially, and she leapt at the chance to move in with him. Soon after she got settled, a change came over him. He was strict, especially with respect to religious protocols. He homeschooled his children to shield them from secular influences. His wives and daughters were required to wear veils. At first, Laura considered him to be a good father because of his success in establishing the clan as a disciplined and religiously observant family. Before long, he asked Laura to become his second wife. This is when everything took a dark turn. He began to isolate her from her children. Her son's demeanor changed. He seldom smiled and just stared at his shoes. All told, the police recovered 12 to 19 children in the house during their raid. Their ages ranged from 8 to 18. Many of the adult-aged children lived on the streets for years. They ate out of trash cans until they were educated and rescued. Laura Cowan and many of Monsa's children appeared on the Dr. Phil show. The children confronted Laura, saying that she lied and claimed to take their side, but in fact she assisted Monsa by reporting them every time they stole food. According to the children, while they were starved and forced to eat their vomit and feces, Laura had access to a refrigerator and had freedom to come and go as she pleased. The children's emotions were still raw. It was a heated exchange. Laura denied the accusations. Thank you for listening to Human Monsters. Bye for now.